want to encourage you to turn your Bibles this morning again to the book of Hebrews in the third chapter. Hebrews chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And let us pray. Father, thank you that we can pray over and over again that you hear us, that um, your precious Son ever lives to make intercession for us. So thank you for the, the boldness and the confidence that we have to come to you. And uh, we do that now. And I would ask uh, again for the help of your Holy Spirit uh, during these moments together that you would uh, help me and assist me to bring forth your, your Holy Word in a way that is pleasing to thee and in a way that is truly good for the souls of each one that is here this Lord's Day morning. So we just pray that you would continue to work in our midst and we thank you that we can worship you and praise you and delight in thee and, and even this day that we can remember the glory and the power of the cross as we would observe your holy table. But right now we would pray for the, the help of your Holy Spirit as we consider these words in your living and pure and holy revelation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I noted, have noted that uh, the theme that gives unity to this section, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is the superiority of Christ over Moses. Um, and as we, we noted, that may seem, in the flow of thought, a bit anticlimactic because uh, the writer had made it abundantly clear that Christ is superior over these magnificent beings called angels. Uh, but the veneration with which uh, Moses was held at that particular time invited comparison between the two. Uh, Jesus and, and Moses were both um, faithful in their respective spheres of, of ministry in God's house. Uh, both, as we saw last Lord's Day, were actively engaged in apostolic as well as priestly ministry. And Moses was uh, the man who, who spoke face to face with God more intimately than other prophets. Uh, he saw the glory of God, and that was reflected in his countenance when he came down from Mount Sinai. Uh, he led Israel out of Egypt. Uh, he brought the Ten Commandments. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the commandments of God in the New Testament often are designated the law of Moses. So Moses was a towering religious figure, and so an invited comparison with the person of Christ. But even though both were faithful in their respective areas of ministry in God's house, Christ is superior or supreme over Moses. Moses was a servant in the house, and Christ was a son over the house, or he ruled over the house. And so the superiority of Christ over Moses, it's brought out in this particular section by the analogy of a, of a builder of a house being worthy of more glory than the house itself. 
the builder or the designer of the house is worthy of more glory because without him, the house of the building would not exist. The builder is the cause or the source of its existence. And we see from chapter 1 and verse 2, uh, the son is the one through whom God made the world. So Moses owes his existence to Christ, who is the son. Now, this morning, we're, we're moving a bit forward here, and our minds will be occupied with verses 4 through 6. Now, because the unifying theme is the supremacy or the superiority of Christ over Moses, uh, we'll be sounding that note still a little bit this morning. So, uh, But we'll be shifting our focus just a little bit from the superiority of Christ over Moses, especially to the centrality of God's house, which is the people of God. When you read through this section, you notice the term house is found over and over again. It occurs in every single verse from verse 2 to verse 6, uh, twice in verse 3 and twice in verse 6. And the house of God, as I indicated, especially refers to the people of God. So this morning we're thinking about the house of God, and we'll consider it in, in three or four respects. First of all, I would have you notice that God is presented as the creator of this house. God is presented as the creator of the house. So in moving from verse 3 to verse 4, the, the analogy of a building is still in view. And as we have seen, the point of the analogy is that the, the builder has more glory or honor than the house because the house owes its existence to the builder. So Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because he is responsible for his existence, for the existence of Moses. Then verse 4 picks up on this analogy of the, um, the mention of the term house it articulates another truism that is readily accepted. It says, for every house has a builder. Every house has a builder. That's a phrase that's readily, I think, commendable to our thinking process. It's compelling, um, and it would be universally accepted and embraced. Anyone who sees a house can, concludes this didn't happen by accident, but there was someone who built the house. If you're walking through the woods and there's an opening and you see a pristine log cabin, you don't just think, well, the wind blew and look what happened. But rather you realize that there was a builder responsible for the existence of this particular structure. So the existence of a house requires the existence of a builder. Peter O'Brien put it like this. He said it's, it's a commonplace observation. Uh, it implies that since every house has a builder, there's always someone greater than the house and worthy of greater glory. And uh, the verb here, which means to build or construct or to create, kind of interesting, it occurs uh, twice in this text. It, it's used of Noah building the ark in, in chapter 11 and verse 7. It's in the active voice. It's translated prepared. It says, by faith, Noah uh, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Then the same verb occurs in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20. Um, it, there it's in the passive voice and it's translated construction. Uh, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So the ark with all of its uh, elaborate features didn't just happen, but it required the faithful assiduous efforts of a builder over a long period of time. Now one of the questions as you're moving through these verses that comes to mind is uh, what is the scope of the term all? You notice the little phrase that he's the builder of all things. Uh, to what does that refer 
There are some who restrict it to refer to the house itself, or more broadly, does it refer to the totality of creation? And because of the immediate context and so many references to the concept of house, some see it as a reference to the house of God, and that's a very understandable interpretation. Um, but I would, I would suggest to you, because of the substitution of house with, the, with all things, that is, all things in the place of, of house, and in addition to that, the use of this term builder here, it's applied to God in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as creator. One example would be in Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Uh, and then also, um, it seems to me, and this is just maybe a bit subjective, but it seems to me the most natural way to read the builder of all things is God would indicate this is his activity in a broad sense as creating the universe, which of course would include his house. Let me suggest in this uh, first heading two or three ways in which this statement is significant. Uh, number one, the reason for the existence of God's house, it's mutually or jointly applied to God the Father and God the Son. The reason for the existence of the house is applied to the Father as well as to the Son. Now, the point of verse 3 is that Jesus is the builder of the house. However, in verse 4, it presents God the Father as the builder of all things, which would include the house. Um, so that's some kind. Of, you might turn here if you would like, or I have I have it here, but you can turn if you would like to First Chronicles chapter seventeen, First Chronicles chapter seventeen, and you see the same kind of dual responsibility is found. This is the chapter where uh, David expresses a desire to build a house for God, but he is informed by God through Nathan that such will not be the case. And in in First Chronicles chapter seventeen and verse ten. Uh, it says, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, um, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. First Chronicles 17.10, God the Father is going to build the house. I, I, I tell you the Lord will build a house for you. Then verse 11, it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, and I will set up one of your descendants after you who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Then verse 12 says, he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. So verse 10, God the Father is going to build the house. Verse 12, the descendant of David is going to build the house. And then verse 14 indicates, I will settle him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So the descendant of David will have an everlasting kingdom. So in verse 10, David is given the promise that God will build the house. And then in verse 12, um, one of his descendants, his son, whose kingdom will be established forever, he is the one who will build the house. F.F. Um, F. Bruce wrote, But Christ, the Son of God, through whom the universe was made and to whom it has been given by his Father as his heritage, is founder and inheritor of the household. No distinction can be made between the Father and the Son in this regard. God the Father, the maker of all things, is inevitably the founder of his own household, and it was through his Son that he brought into being all things in general and his own household in particular. Uh, the same kind of thing, though. I know we've brought this out before, this, this kind of thing. If the test question was, who built the house of God? A, God the Father, B, God the Son, or C, all of the above. The correct answer is C, both. Well, secondly, under this heading, the kind of, um, this kind of expansive 
language presses into our minds that God the Father is the sovereign Lord over all, and especially his house. And what I mean by expansive language is the builder of all things is God. The builder of all things is God. One commentator wrote, thus God is the sovereign Lord over all things from creation to glorification. And this this term build occurs uh, twice um, in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. And again, it's, it's referring to um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's translated creating twice in Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45, 6 says that, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. There's a clear affirmation of the sovereignty of the being of God. Then verse 7 says, The one forming light and creating darkness causing well-being and creating calamity. I'm, I'm the Lord who does all these things. So this, this is the same God who is creator of all things, including the house and his people. And I think a text like that helps us to embrace more fully and understand how the Lord of glory can say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and thirdly, just to quote um, William Lane, Jesus worthy of more glory than Moses in the same measure as God has more honor than the universe he created. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in the same measure as God has more honor and glory than the universe that he created. So in the first place, we see here that God is the creator of his house. Secondly, we're emphasizing the supremacy of Christ over that house. The supremacy of Christ over that house. This is a combination of verse 5 and the first part of verse 6 together. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. <clears throat> so the combination of these two verses reinforces the supremacy of the ministry of Christ over Moses as it relates to God's house in their respective spheres of ministry. Moses fulfilled the office of his servant within the household. Jesus was the son over the house. Now, now the argument turns here on the distinction between a son rather than a servant and the preposition over rather than in. Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house. Let me just offer three uh, further thoughts in this regard. Number one, Moses is presented here and throughout the scriptures very positively as being a faithful servant in God's house. Moses is presented as being a faithful servant in God's house. He was trustworthy, dependable to fulfill the duties assigned to him. He was a faithful, in particular, as a servant in God's house. That's a person who works in the service of another. Moses is um, referred to repeatedly as a servant in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In Numbers 12, 6, he said, now hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant, Moses. He is faithful in all my household. Then Moses refers to himself as a, serp, uh, excuse me, as a servant in Exodus 4.10. Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And William Lane says, in context, it carries overtones, that, that is the term servant, of dignity and honor, describes a relationship of intimacy and trust between Moses and God. Moses stands out among the covenant people of the whole retinue of God as a honored servant. The basis of dignity was his relationship to God, which he proved trustworthy. Secondly, I would have you notice here that the ministry of Moses, it's presented as having an anticipatory or a prophetic character. And I'm thinking of the second part of verse 5. 
for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. A testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Testimony is attestation. It's the, the action of bearing witness about someone or something. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce wrote, The claims of Christ and the gospel indeed are foreshadowed in the ministry which was committed to Moses. Uh, he writes that his ministry was designed as a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken, or in the language used later in this epistle, it was designed as a shadow of the good things to come, the good things which now have indeed come in Christ. And so we see the, the prophetic character of the ministry of Moses. Let me just share with you a bit from the Old Testament. Here's two verses from Deuteronomy chapter 18, which helped to, I think, bring this out. This is Moses speaking, Deuteronomy 18, 15. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And then verse 18 says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And verse 19 says, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses, he's aware here of this sort of foreshadowing character of his ministry as a servant in God's house. Um, and also, kind of moving to the New Testament, and this is um, after the resurrection, we read these words of our Lord to uh, two people that are walking on the road to Emmaus with him, Luke 24, 27. It says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Then another post-resurrection uh, account in Luke 24, 43, it says he um, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it's interesting, the Apostle Peter makes reference to that. The passage we just read in Deuteronomy in his second sermon in the Acts of the Apostles, um, Peter said, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Then we get to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. This is his last sermon. In verse 35, this Moses whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Then Stephen says, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. So again, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Um, so the, the ministry of Moses, it has this forward dimension that is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Christ. And we, we find these words, this is about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 28. When they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning to evening. So his ministry has this prophetic dimension to it. It looked forward to the person of Christ 
And the Puritan John Owen elaborates just a bit, bit here. He makes the point that it was, it was not just confined to what Moses said, but to Moses' servant, uh, service, especially with respect to the tabernacle. He writes, this being a testimony refers to the whole faithfulness of Moses, which was not confined or restrained into the things which were spoken, but extended itself under the whole service of the house wherein he was employed, as well as the building of the tabernacle and the institution of ordinances as revealing the will of God and his law. One writer said, as the, as the writer asserts, the order established through Moses was a shadow of the good things to come in Christ. This especially was true of the tabernacle, priesthood, sacrifices under the old covenant. Things pointed to the ministry of our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. So the faithfulness of Moses was a testimony relating to what he spoke, but also to his service and involving sacrificial activities which foreshadowed what would ultimately be fulfilled in the person of Christ. So the ministry of Moses um, is not to be undervalued or diminished. He was a faithful servant. He had a prophetic, it had a prophetic character, which would be ultimately accomplished in the sacrificial death of Christ. And then thirdly, just to kind of make the, the point I referred to um, earlier, um, Christ as a son over the house is superior to Mo- Moses. This point is also made when you put these two verses together, superiority of Christ over the house. And here I'll just quote from one author that I thought made the point well. The superior status of Jesus indicated by the designation son and by his appointment to exercise his rule over the house of God. What the writer understands by son has been demonstrated in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, where it refers to his exaltation, dignity of the son, terms of enthronement, acclamation, and worship of angels. Here the same exalted status is affirmed in contrast between a servant within the house, household and the son who presides over its administration. So in the first place here, God is the creator of the house. Secondly, we see the supremacy or the superiority of Christ over the house. And then thirdly, we want to just touch on the, the character or the nature of the house. Verse 6 helps us with the words, whose house we are. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. That helps us to see that um, the people of God constitute or compose the house. And the Old Testament, the people of Israel were referred to uh, with this title, just an example or two, uh, Exodus 16:31, and the house of Israel named it manna, and it was coriander, like coriander seed. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. But in the New Testament, it seems to me especially, uh, the house of God has a reference to the saved, to believers, to those who are converted. I'm persuaded here in this context, um, it has reference to the holy brethren who are partakers of a holy calling in chapter 3 and verse 1, those who are sanctified in chapter 2 and verse 11, the many sons that are brought to glory in verse 10 of chapter 2. And if we look at just some other usages of the term in the New Testament, um, it helps us to understand the nature of this house. I'm going to quote two Verses here from uh, Ephesians, verse 15, then verse 19. And it helps us to see that the household of God are those who were, who were strangers and aliens, but through faith in Christ, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, now they're all one in Christ. Uh, verse 15 of, he- of Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, 
that in himself he might make the two, Jews and Gentiles, into one new man, thus establishing peace. Then a little further in the context, verse 19 of Ephesians 2, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So it's, it's Jews and Gentiles converted together in God's household. Then secondly, we see that the house, um, that this people of God, it's made up of those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 2, 5, it says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So to be a part of the spiritual house, there has to be regeneration by the Holy Spirit, indwelling by the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit. So um, it, it clearly, it seems to me, has reference to one who is converted, one who is born again. And then it's a term that also helps us to understand the nature of the church, the nature of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 15, Paul says, In case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So we know that the church is the church of the living God. It's animated by the life of God the Father. We know that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. It is to stand for the truth and promote the truth and defend the truth. But we see here it's also a household of God. It's, it's a family. It's made up of those who have been adopted into the family of God and have that kind of relationship with one another. <clears throat> the church is the household of God. It's interesting, Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I would have you notice also, um, in this verse, there's a conditional statement added to it. You probably already noticed that. Verse 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Peter O'Brien wrote, their continuing membership in God's house is dependent on their holding fast to the end. The admonishing of believers to hold fast to what they have is one of the major emphases he points out in the book of Hebrews. Um, the, the term hold fast here is to retain faithfully. Uh, it's to stick firmly, whether in, in a physical sense or in an abstract way. <clears throat> a few years ago, um, I operated a jackhammer for a long time. I never want to do it again. Um, but you, you have to hold on firmly. I mean, you can't just, you have to hold on firmly or you have a problem. And the idea here is, is physically is to hold on firmly, abstractly or mentally. It's to grab or to hold on firmly to a thought or to an idea. And here we're exhorted to hold fast our, our confidence. The thing to be gripped, the thing to be held on to is our confidence, which is, it's the idea of boldness and, and fearlessness. And it can move in two different directions. It can be confidence in behalf of God toward other people. This is Acts 4.13, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, understood that they were uneducated, untrained men. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So it's boldness in behalf of God to people. Examples would be 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing against uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants them to fall down and worship a false image. Or Stephen that we just made reference to boldly proclaiming the truth against an angry mob of unbelievers. So it can be confidence uh, toward people in behalf of God or confidence toward God. In 1 John 2.28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Or 1 John 3.21, below Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. The the two are closely related. Um, I think the emphasis here is especially on confidence before God. We find the same term in verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, it's important that when we're talking about confidence before God, It doesn't have anything to do with who you are or what I am. The basis of the confidence is the sacrificial work of Christ in our behalf. In verse 17 of the last chapter, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Then a really good text, Hebrews 10, 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The confidence to approach God totally resides in what the person of Christ accomplished in our behalf. So it's a persuasion in our soul of the perfection of the work of Christ in our behalf when he died in our stead on the cross. So we are to hold fast our confidence. Secondly, we're to hold fast the the boast of our hope. Um, The hope here, as John Brown puts it, is the hope here spoken of is what by way of eminence may be called the Christian hope, the the expectation of everlasting happiness through Christ Jesus. That's that's the substance of the hope, the expectation of everlasting happiness through Christ Jesus. This is the hope which has been brought to us in the word of the truth of the gospel and which is awakened in every heart into which the faith of the gospel enters. Let me uh, conclude here by offering three implications. In light of this three implications, number one, this teaches us, I think very clearly, a very clear implication. The Christian life always involves persevering in the faith. The true soul-saving Christian life always involves persevering to the end. It is necessary. It's an evidence of true conversion. Peter O'Brien wrote, Hebrews virtually defines true believers as those who hold firmly to the end, the confidence they had at first. So this text belongs in those those complex of verses throughout the scriptures that champion this aspect of the gospel. Let me give you two or three others here. Um, Colossians 1.22, this is the kind of verse you might want to have on, on your wall. Yet he has now reconciled you to his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is what he's done for us. But verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and which I, Paul, was made a minister. Along the same lines, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.1 I now make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if 
you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So it's the gospel that, that you are saved by. It's the gospel in which you stand if you hold fast to the word. Um, I'm just going to read to you a few verses from Luke chapter 8. This is one of the renditions of our Lord explaining the significance of the parable of the soils. This is from Luke 8:11. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and a time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Then the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast, hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So what I'm affirming here, perseverance in the faith is a necessary element of the true gospel. Now, if we want to know, because I'm, I'm presuming if it was testimony time, um, we all know people like this, do we not? They were in the faith for a while, for a period of time, and we thought, this is really good. They're around the people of God. They seem to be interested in truth. And then somewhere along the line, they moved away, they drifted away, and now they're ambivalent to the whole thing. They don't really care about spiritual things. They're not really interested in the truth. You know people like that. And then the question that comes to mind, well, what happened to them? I mean, how they, how they get from here appear to appearing to love Christ and love truth and love the gospel over here were they either rejected or they don't care? I, I mean, my answer here, at least a helpful verse to my own way of thinking, is from 1 John. It's sobering but instructive. It says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. The, the us here, it seems to me, it has to be those who believe that you're only saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and, and they embrace especially those doctrines that cluster around that kind of doctrine. Um, and, and these are those who have, have left that. Um, well, then implication number two, um, with respect to this perseverance, this teaching presupposes what we know to be true, that there will always be diabolical forces at work which seek to undermine your commitment to Christ. There will always be forces at work, I want to say outside the church, but shall we say inside the professing church as well. There's always going to be influences that seek to undermine your love for Christ, your commitment to Christ, your grip on the truth. That's how we need to think. It's a warfare, and we need to understand that's the way it is until the Lord of glory comes. And then thirdly, and, and relatedly, in light of that, we must not allow the many glorious passages in the Bible on the eternal safety of the soul. Now, what I mean by that, you begin a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We believe that, we glory in that, but what I'm affirming here is we must not allow those kind of passages to weaken or nullify the effects of these kind of warning passages. This is written to brethren. This is written to believers. And I'm arguing God knows your heart better than you do. I'm arguing God knows my heart better than I do. He knows what kind of motivations we need to keep moving, keep progressing on the narrow road that needs to life. So we need a combination of motivations to continue to make progress in the Christian life. Well, shall we pray? 
Father, we thank you for these considerations. I pray that they would be helpful to our own thinking process and that we would be those who persevere in the faith until the end, that uh, we would be those who work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We would be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we pray that as we make a transition to the observing of the Lord's table, it might be uh, precious and edifying to our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.